Por favor, deem as boas-vindas a Damian Barr e Polly Sampson. So, Polly is going to read two short extracts from the book, and then we're going to take um, some questions from you. And of course, she'll be signing the book afterwards. Okay. Lucifer, Lucifer flew well for her in the fading light, falling through the sky when she summoned him, and away again towards a great bruising sunset. She was alone on the ridge at first, just her, the bird, and the wide open view. It was one of those nervy summer days of sudden strong winds that fretted the hawk's feathers as he stared at her from his perch on her gauntlet. She was wearing a long red shirt over jeans and sandals. Her hair was breaking free of its band. A leather pouch hung from her belt and a whistle from a cord around her neck. The hawk braced his feet on her wrist, making a leather tassel swing from the gauntlet. She felt the breath of his feathers on her face as he departed and she watched him go with the wind right under his wings, scattering crows like drops shaken from an umbrella. Julia was trying her best to get it right for the bird. The morsels were small to keep him active, a shaming 26 ounces he'd weighed on the scales that morning. She called him with the whistle, two sharp bursts, and there he was, a dark Cupid's bow firing straight at her from the heavens. She continued along the ridge, Lucifer steady on her arm, his manic eyes never leaving her face until she gave the signal. She sent him reeling to and fro, and neither of them knew that this was to be their last dance. The evening started to chill. She'd almost forgotten that Julian was supposed to be meeting her there, or perhaps she'd just given up hope. He was panting when he arrived, still red in the face from the run up the hill, his bike and its useless tire abandoned. He had the air of a boy who'd crossed three continents to see her, his sweatshirt knotted round his waist. Impossibly young, with hair falling over his eyes and an uncertain lope, one leg of his jeans still tucked into a sock. He didn't dare kiss her, he said, with the hawk glaring at him like that from the end of her wrist. The hawk shrugged his shoulders and she sent him flying. They kissed, and when Julian stopped to glance nervously at the sky, she took off the gauntlet and pushed his hand inside. She urged the hawk with her whistle, moving Julian's arm up and down, the gauntlet's tassel dancing. But Lucifer only soared higher, the wind whispering murder into his ear and deafening him to her call. Julia ran cursing, Julian lolloping beside her. She grabbed back the gauntlet as the hawk fell to his kill. Julian's hands were warm on her waist and it seemed to them both that the scream of the rabbit went on forever. And now the second short extract I'll read is um, Julian's first sighting of Julia. So it actually chronologically is before that part. It was as if she had sprung fully formed from his forehead. Julia, like a prize for the climb he'd taken to get there, standing on the crest of the downs with three counties falling away behind her and her long hair flying. Just moments before he had dreamed her up, this very woman, as he clambered up the chalk path his shame receding as he climbed higher, but still a little breathless from Carl's brandy and ouzo of the night before. He'd summoned her from the depths of his hangover, wished her into being. Ta-da! She was everything he desired, right down to the muscular brown calves that emerged from her cut-off blue jeans. The wind blew in chaotic gusts, bowling him along the grassy ridge towards her. She was walking with her back to the wind, 
chin tipped to the sky, and didn't notice him until he was close enough to make her jump. Hi, he called out, and as she turned with startled brows, he saw that her face was just as he dreamt it, neatly featured, with a tanned skin, and out of dark lashes, her eyes as unexpectedly blue as a Siamese cat. Whoa, it's blowy, he said, amazed to find he could speak. She nodded and gestured to the sky. Hey, look out! And only as she raised her left arm did he notice the leather gauntlet. He followed her eyes skyward to a bird that was falling, turning and turning like a heart that had leapt free. It fell, and as it did, it became a falcon. He was transfixed. His was the raptor's gaze. He was hurling himself straight at her from the heavens. The beat of its wings was the beat of his heart. It landed on her outstretched arm, claiming her, snatching her wrist with its yellow and black feet, jealously shielding the meat she gave it beneath a mantle of wing and tail feathers. Whoa, a falcon. I've never seen one up close. She laughed at his astonishment. Manners, Lucifer, she said as it tore the meat from her. Actually, he's a Harris hawk. The bird looked at her with psychopathic eyes. Don't be so greedy, she scolded, and Julian noticed her shirt billowing, the sheen of her skin. She held a second morsel of pink stringy meat in the gauntlet. A leather tassel danced from her wrist, jerking as the hawk stripped the meat. What's that you're feeding him? Don't ask. She wrinkled her nose in a way that made his heart tender. It was delicately freckled across, just across the bridge. Another mischievous gust revealed a leather belt, and above it the momentary distraction of a long, narrow stomach smooth as new brown paper. Perhaps he was dreaming. All the way up here to fly him, and it's perfect, this wind, but he hasn't caught a thing this morning. He listened for clues to her exotic looks in her accent, but found none. She pulled a face at the hawk, and it took the cue to fly from her, imperious feathers ruffled, reeling away to the trees. Off he goes again, she said, and Julian watched the swing of her walk as she headed for the copse, the loose folds of white shirt gathering at her waist. The pouch from which she'd taken the bits of meat bounced against her hip. The gauntlet was comically large at the end of her slender brown arm. The hawk landed in a tree, and Julian found he was holding his breath, his own arms outstretched, cruciform, willing it to fly to her, his every muscle tensed. It veered off, and Julia started to lollop, then to jog, following the flight of the bird. She was almost out of sight. He panicked, unable to think of a thing to shout. He patted his pockets impotently. All he had on him was the key to his bike lock and a wrap of tobacco. There was nothing he could pretend she'd lost. He watched her vanish round the edge of the trees, hands helplessly hanging at his sides as she disappeared. He ran to the copse, stumbling across mounds of grass, but there was no sign of her. Brambles snatched. Out of breath, he leant against a tree trunk. Through the leaves, he could see only crows circling, their callous cries echoing. Thank you, Paula. <laughs> it's so good that tada is the same in every single language. <laughs> tada! Foi tão legal ouvir o tada em português, né? Foi tada! Oh, tada! Tada! I'm learning so much time. today. <laughs> So let's start at the, at the very beginning. Who is Julian and who is Julia and how do they get bound together? They are, a, 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 in a way, an unlikely couple because Julia is eight years older than Julian, but they belong together. At the point that they meet, he is a student of English and a scholar of a poet, John Milton. And she is, has been married 
to the same man who is much older than her since she was 18 and it is an abusive relationship. So they, they meet and it's um, this kind of uh, bolt from the heavens in the form of yeah. Lucifer that brings them that brings them together. It, it could just have been a fling, it could have been a moment. What is it that keeps them together, do you think? Well, it was such a good fling that they decided to keep doing it, is the answer to that. It was a But it's a chemistry. Yeah. They belong together, they complete each other. Um, you um, are a mistress of the short story form, and this novel sprang out of a short story, which is it's an unusual progression because people often yeah. think wrongly that short stories are condensed novels. They're very yeah. different things. No, but how did you go? How did the short story come about, first of all? And how did you go from a short story to a full novel? Um, my last book was a collection of short stories that were linked. And um, in England, I don't know if it's the same in Brazil, you are told short stories do not sell. And I felt quite bullied by this idea. Um, and so I decided that I was absolutely going to write another book that was going to take the short story form and make it sell and use it in a different way. And so I decided that the book would be a novella um, of, Julie, of what happens to Julian, Julian and Julia, and that the explanation, the second half, would be Julian's own short stories um, as, and a it, as a writer. And so I started by writing Julian's short stories, and one of them was indeed published in The Guardian, which was all right, except that by then I'd changed my mind. It's, it's interesting, having written you know, short stories and novels, and also you know, having written short stories and trying to write a novel, there's a, this question about conden, you know, condensing stuff in. Um, what are the different pleasures and challenges of, of the two different forms for you? I think the way I write a novel is, is, as, is, is very similar to how I write a short story, which is that I like everything to be going on between the lines rather than on the line. Um, the what difference... That, that, that I want the reader, I want to, I want the reader to work out what's really happening, and so I leave. So what what is happening on the line is very nuanced, and that is very similar to how I write a short story. The difference is that I can keep the whole short story in my head, and with the novel, I feel like my head's going to explode. Um, so it's ten ten years since your um, since your first since the since the first novel came out. Have you been thinking about this novel for that amount of time? This is not me giving you a hard time for being slow. Um, <laughs> but have, have, you, have you been thinking about it for that amount of time and going back to it? Or you know, did it come to you very suddenly? Um, I, I thought that the idea for this novel came to me in 2010, which was when I, my last book came out. And it was only um, once I'd finished that I went to an old suitcase of, of poems and things I'd written in my early 20s, and I found the plot for this book written out, but I'd completely forgotten. So my subconscious has been thinking about it for a very long time. And did the plot stay the same as the plot that, you, that you'd written down all those years ago? And it's interesting talking about plot, because yeah. don't, people don't think of you as a plotty writer, yes. but this book has been described so many times now as a thriller of the emotions, so we'll come. Yeah, I didn't plot it, actually. I knew, I knew roughly what needed to happen because it's based loosely on an old family story. But I would be very bored if I worked to a plot. So it, I just made it up as I went along and, and you know, occasionally thought, I, I want people to keep turning the pages. So did you know where it was... Where, I'm not going to give away any spoilers here. <laughs> um, but did, did you know how it was going to end and how we would get to that ending? Certainly not from the moment I started writing. It was a, it, it was a, 
open book. Um, but, you know, things happen. Um, when I started the book, I thought that I would be writing as a, a Julian who hated Julia. And one day I was walking along the seafront as I, I do something called method writing, mm -hmm. um, which means inhabiting the person and it's a way of not becoming agitated by the blank page as much as anything. And I walked as Julian and I saw Julia sitting on a far off bench and I realised I didn't hate her, I loved her. Thinking of method writing, I mean, I, I know you didn't have an affair with anyone called Julian or Julia, um, but I know that you did a huge amount of research uh, for the book. Do you want to tell us what you researched? There were, some of the research was more enjoyable than other parts of the research. I had to spend a long time in a children's hospital because there's a child at the centre of the book who becomes very seriously ill. Mira. Mira. And so that, you know, the very nature of a children's hospital, it's, it's, it's upsetting. Um, so did, were, they, were they all right with you just going there? And which, which, which bit of it did you I, hang out in? And how, how did you feel being there? I was very lucky. Um, I, I'd done quite a lot of research with some other medical people to identify the illness that the child Mira was suffering from. And al although there's a lot of sadness in the hospital, there's also, you know, you, there are some incredibly miraculous outcomes. And I'm very glad I went and spent time at the hospital because before that I'd been using YouTube. And the problem with YouTube is that on the whole there isn't a good outcome because the reason that people have made those videos is a way of remembrance. So in, the hospital was less depressing. It was better to go and see the real thing and to see children who were recovering. But YouTube did come as a blessing with another bit of research. Um, I had to... Um, at one point, rather key point in the book, Julian sees his sperm under a microscope. And I wanted to be able to describe it quite poetically. I didn't want to just say, it looked like tadpoles. <laughs> so instead, <laughs> what do we so, have? So, so I, thought, I thought, well, there would be a scientist who must have put on YouTube a lovely film of, of, of his research with sperm. So I put it in my search into, into YouTube and found I didn't find a scientist, but I found a lot of young American men who like to film their sperm down a microscope. <laughs> and then when they've done the film, they play guitar solos. <laughs> if, if the sperm are very slow, are they sad songs? Or are they quite happy songs? <laughs> <laughs> There didn't seem to be a problem with the motility of those who'd, who'd uploaded yet. Yeah. More seriously, the, the kind of compass points of this book, the north, south, east and west, are grief and loss yeah. and love and betrayal yeah. um, and in the time that you took to for your subconscious to filter the book your life changed a lot you know when you started it you had two parents yeah and when it you know when it finished you had one yeah. and in that time also as well as losing your dad Charlie your son went to jail yeah. so how how did that experience filter through to the novel and maybe was maybe was writing the novel a, a relief I think that the main effect, I mean, it, it, it made it very easy to access the, the, the feelings of grief within the book. Um, and in a way, Charlie, Charlie went to, to prison for, um, for being a student protester and behaving rather badly and foolishly on a, on a protest in London. But I admired him for the stand he was taking. So it was a very difficult thing because personally, I felt miserable and unable to do anything other than be miserable. On the other hand, I felt, still felt very proud of him. Um, but what it, I suppose the way that it contributed to the book 
was that I couldn't, while he was in prison, I couldn't write, so it extended the period of research, and Julian is a scholar of Milton, and it, it meant that instead of hurrying to, to get to the writing, I spent that year, while the whole Charlie thing was going on, studying Milton myself. I know that I've asked you a lot of questions and people here want to ask you questions and I know we're already running short on time, so I'm going to take two questions now. So first and foremost, well, welcome to Brazil. And you've told us a little bit about the difference between writing short stories and a novel. Now can you tell us about the difference between writing lyrics and fiction or novel or short stories? Um, it's rather similar. The, the difference being that I have, the, on the whole, the music comes first. So I have a very strong emotional prompt. Um, and the other difference is that David is the character who will have to, to sing these words. And unlike a character in a book, he's real. E diferentemente de um caráter de um personagem no livro, ele é uma pessoa real. And it's the joy. We have one more question. Vamos, temos mais uma pergunta. There's a lady here in the front row. Hi. Hi. Um, those kinds of stories, like the kindness, are usually the point of view of the wife, of the mother, but in the beginning, although it's Julia's point of view and the rest is Julian, I would like you to talk about how it was for you to write Julian's point of view and how this, the idea came to you. Right. Um, I've, ri I've written as a man before, uh, so it doesn't feel strange to me, but as I've mentioned, I do this method writing, so it is quite strange to go f for a walk as a man, particularly when women walk towards you. <laughs> <laughs> Such a lovely literary transvestite you make. Please join me in thanking the fantastic Polly Samson. Now it's time for our second guest. I'm very pleased to be able to introduce him. He is as much a lover of books and stories as he is a master of music, and most especially the guitar. He is the man who sings the words that Paulie writes, and he's here to launch his fourth album, Rattle That Walk. Please welcome David Gilmore. <laughs> You weren't expecting that, were you? Um, so, um, was anybody at the show last night? Just a <laughs> <laughs> Any good? Um, now, I said this is your fourth solo album. It's not actually a solo album because you work incredibly closely with lots of people, including um, Phil Manzanera, who is, who is out there and has been Você a producer on this um, but of course, the person you work most closely with is the person you sent next to, is Polly. Tell us how the partnership, the songwriting partnership, started. It started in uh, 1993, when I was working on the album that became The Division Bell, Pink Floyd's last um, sort of major album back then. I was trying to write some words for it, and I kept asking Polly, 
who wasn't very well at the time, if she would help me a little bit. And gradually I bullied her into basically taking over. Um, I had a temperature of 103 or I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> You'd not written a song. Had you written a lyric for any, or poetry even for yourself at that point? Well, I, I wrote a lot of poetry and I was, I did, yes. I, I mean, from, I assume everyone makes up songs. And, and what was that like for you? I mean, you bullied her into it and you got her to do it. Were you instantly happy with the results or were there edits? Uh, as you very well know, Daniel, <laughs> there are always edits. So, and how do you manage that editing process? Then? It's not hard. I mean, Polly is brilliant at writing words, and um, she got into the swing of what. I mean, I was struggling because you know I was left in a situation where I was having to take on a big workload that was um, not something that um, I enjoy. You, you said about writing the words for the David character, uh, and I don't think I've heard you say that before. Um, and I was thinking about watching you last night on stage and how much you were yourself yeah. and, also, and also not yourself. So what is it like, first of all, for you hearing the words that you write in, in his mouth and at what point in the process does, does that happen? Uh, the thrill for me is, is when I've finished a lyric and I go and interrupt whatever he's doing in the studio and I'm very impatient and I take it in and he knows how impatient I am so he sings it. And, and are, you are you like, no, 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 that, this way, that way, that way. And you just keep corrigiendo him, no? Yeah, sometimes a bit. And um, the thing, that is such a great moment that there is no moment of David ever singing that song again that can come anywhere close to the thrill of the first time. And when you realise that it's going to work because that very first try it's so exciting and, and it's very convincing. You know it's going to happen and, and it's just a joy. Uh, let's talk about Rattle That Lock and, and the title track. So I happen to have here uh, the, uh, the, the book of lyrics and also the book um, of Paradise Lost, book two. And we talked about it a wee bit. I mean, you don't have to have read Paradise Lost at all to understand the kindness. It's a sort of influence. It's, it's, it's a feeling. And it's also the same in Rattle That Lock. But you have that fantastic video where we see Lucifer coming coming down. Um, were you as obsessed by Paradise Lost as, as she was? Um, and, and do you feel it's kind of like a, a protest song? You don't have to have read Paradise Lost. It adds an extra layer. I mean, to Polly's book and to the song, they are, what would you say, an, a, an underlying inspiration. Uh, we're here in Brazil, which is one of the highest incarceration rates anywhere yes. in the world. Lots of people in prison. And you used the Liberty Choir um, on the album. Tell us about the Liberty Choir and, and why you used them. Um, the Liberty Choir is a choir that operates both inside prisons in England and outside prisons. And a choir of people go in to the prison and the prisoners sing in there, and these prisoners are the ones who are near the end of their sentences. And so at the, at, when they do come out of prison, um, they have an alternative place to go. Instead of going back into only the places they knew before where they got into trouble, there is a place where they are welcomed into a group of people one night a week to go and sing and feel what a joy it is to sing in a group of people as many as we are here in this room all singing and they do very beautiful Vivaldi uh, complex pieces of music and they learn their joy at both at the singing and seeing 
how they are welcomed into a different community can really change their lives. So um, this is a charity that Polly and I have both been supporting for a while. And Polly's words about rattling that lock and lo losing those chains seemed a very um, appropriate thing for me to ask that choir to do the singing for the record. So we went into a church in London and we had that choir obviously not the ones who were in prison, but the ones who were out of prison, with, with the people that they, with whom they sing. And they sang the words on the, on the song. So I know that you're a sound magpie. You'll hear stuff, you'll play stuff, and you'll forget about it for a long time, and yeah. then it'll resurface and you think, ah, I found a place to use this. Yes. And in this track, there is the brilliant, if you've got it, I don't yeah, know if you have I'll, it on I'll your find phone. find the wire. So here, here, here's a library of sounds and fragments. Let's see if I can find it. What I love about it is, is that the, first the very first time that I heard it, I was with you, and we both immediately started dancing. So, in France, on the railway stations, before they make an announcement that tells you that your train is going to be late, they play a little four-note jingle. And unlike most of these jingles that you hear in our airports and our train stations, it's actually catchy and rhythmic. So I was on a station in France and I heard it and I took my iPhone and I have a recorder, you know, a, a memo thing, and I held it there until it happened again. And um, it sounds, hopefully this is on and not too loud or too quiet, I, it's guesswork. <laughs> That's it. I mean, it's, it's good, isn't it? Hey, so couple. So I took it home. I put it onto tape and wrote a song. And that's the song that became Rattle That Lock with Polly's great words. And for yes, I give it Rest of that log. Yeah. It married together so beautifully. Um, let's now talk about a sadder song. It's the opposite end of the spectrum. A Boat Lies Waiting. Um, what, what's the story of that song for both of you? Uh, this is um, a piece of music that I wrote quite a long time ago. Na verdade, eu escrevi há muito tempo atrás, ele On the piano. No piano. Um, and I don't know, somehow on this record it seemed like the right moment to be recording it. And no, Polly can tell you how she wrote the lyrics. <laughs> So it was the first, it was the first um, lyric I wrote for this album, and I loved it. It just, it, it, it immediately brings very, very sort of sad and mournful emotions. But I felt it was very precious, and I had to have something that was very true for David to sing. So I had it in my headphones and got David to come for a walk with me along the beach. We sat and we looked out to sea and there was a lovely sailing boat going past. And I said to David, please give me a clue. Just tell me something, anything that this music means to you. And he stared out at sea for maybe 15 minutes. E ele ficou olhando para o mar tipo uns 15 minutos. And then maybe another 15 minutes. Depois mais uns 15 minutos. The sun started to set. O sol começou a se pôr. And then he turned to me and he said. Aí ele vira e fala. Mortality. Mortalidade. 
It's something we think about. É um negócio que a gente pensa, David. But simultaneously, he'd been because he was starting to now seriously put this album together musically. He'd been trying to find a keyboard player, and many very good people came to play with him, all of whom shall remain nameless. And as he failed to connect with them, or they failed to connect with him, it brought back the grief of Richard Wright's death, as though he died for the second time, because David realized that he hadn't just lost a friend, he'd lost his most perfect musical partner. And so that's how the lyric got written, because I realized that this was the thing that he was thinking about the most. Were you conscious of any of that when you were, when you were doing, making the music? When you no. were making the, so what were you feeling when you were, because when I hear the song, I automatically feel like sad. And I know that's of course because of, of the words, but the mel it just seems to suggest lo longing and, and well, missingness. It, it, it is, it suggests longing and yeah, all of those things. It's very hard to define though for me, as you, can, as you know, to pin down what it actually means verbally. Yeah. So I can play a little bit of it if you like. You may have heard it on the record, but um, this is an, a, a much earlier version with me singing on it, but without words. So this is what Polly would have been listening to in, então, in So you can see it's sad. <laughs> so when I can, I'm listening to that and I'm, I'm, I'm almost hearing words. I feel like there are words just there and they're, they're, not, they're not quite coming out. Do you feel like I that? think that too. Yeah, so you're kind of getting, getting towards it. Um, do you feel like that's what, that's what, you, that's what you're doing? You're, you're, you're channeling yeah, or interpreting what it is he's trying to get to. I do. And um, actually, often with the scat, the words are so close to the surface yeah. that you can start hearing real words, and, and I, I often start by writing those down, because it's like looking for clues. Mm. You know, what is it he's trying to say? Yeah. <laughs> in a moment, we're going to take just a few questions, only two, because Polly has to go and sign some books that I know David will also be signing. Um, but I just wanted to ask, you know, do you, do you always respond to the music that he gives you, or do you ever just come up with lyrics and then say, right, give us a piece of music? Um, always the other way around. Um, only once. I've written a song which was lyrics first, which was for the last Pink Floyd album, The Endless River, because I felt quite strongly that it shouldn't have any words, because it was a beautiful 
expression of what Rick and David and Nick and Guy do when they jam together. With Rick gone, it felt awkward to me to be imposing my words on top. But David likes to sing. Mas o David gosta de cantar. And without words, sem palavras sing. não dá para cantar. So he wanted one song to really to put a full stop to the Pink Floyd repertoire. Então... So I wrote a song about why he didn't need words. <laughs> We'll take two questions. You choose, you pick. Uh, hands up. Levanta a mão que quer fazer the man in the black t-shirt and the, 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 the guy here in the front. Okay. I, uh, I'll take a question from a woman as well because it seems wrong <laughs> not to do that. <laughs> Hi, Dave. This is a dream come true. <laughs> That's not a question. <laughs> it's also not in question. <laughs> How you... How you guys made In Any Tongue? For me, it is the most beautiful song ever. How did you guys make that? <laughs> How did we do that? <laughs> Polly wrote words again to um, a, a piece of music which had got some singing on it, me going la, 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 la. I can play it for you if you like. And you'll hear the, um, the almost words, because it's, there are some words in this scat that are very... Esse processo que eles chamam de scat, parece que quase tem palavras. Se você prestar atenção, você ouve uma palavra aqui ou ali. Good afternoon to the two of you. I spent my whole life waiting to meet you. Still not to answer the question. I sold a car just to see you in Queria perguntar para Polly quando ela vai ter um marido escritor. Só depois que ele morrer. Ou o dia que ele escrever um livro. Boa tarde, meu nome é Jaqueline, eu sou jornalista. Uh, minha pergunta é o seguinte: uh, enquanto a Polly escreve os livros, o Demi deve estar numa viagem. It's a bit of a long question, but she says she's, her name is Jacqueline. She's also a, a, a journalist, and she wanted to know about this thing. Like most probably, when you're writing, you're doing your thing with music, and what is the connection like, basically? Is it like you just look at each other in the eyes? How does it go to just merge the two of you together? <laughs> 
Oh, an easy question. Good. Yeah. Pergunta facinho, facinho. We work separately. Sim, eles trabalham separadamente. Most of the time, and um, every day when Polly is writing, she calls me in to read to me what she's working on. E eles trabalham separadamente a maior parte do tempo. And she's actually living within the book that she is writing. E ela está habitando o livro que ela escreve. And it's hard to break in sometimes. E às vezes é difícil de entrar nesse mundo dela. She's somewhere else, and I'm sure it's the same when I'm working away more predominantly in the studio. Um, and obviously I am playing what I am working on in the house to Polly all the time when I'm working on it. So we both work really well helping each other, I hope. No, he has very good ideas when I read to him and he doesn't fall asleep, which is always a good sign. Ele tem muito boas ideias quando ela lê para ele e um bom ponto também é que ele nunca dorme quando ela lê para ele, o que é sempre uma vantagem. I even managed to plagiarize him in this book. I stole a line from Don't tell, don't tell. Ela quer contar, ela quer contar, espera que ela contar. I stole from him. Ela roubou uma fala dele. Yeah, she stole the line. Thank you. Obrigado então. So tweet is if you find the, the, the line and have fun trying to find that in the, the wonderful book which is available around the corner in a minute. I just want to say a huge thank you to Rooftop 5 for hosting us, to Record Publishing and Renata um, for having us here at Mercury Concerts, um, at Paula, our translator, and of course a huge thank you to Polly Sampson and David Gilmore and all of you for being here. Thank you so much. Eles são dois disponíveis para autógrafos.